Welcome to Tiny Futures, a conversational, multi-hosted podcast about the aftertimes, precarious living, and the stories we tell ourselves amidst the dying throes of late capitalism. I'm Nancy, Assistant Professor of English at Cal Poly Pomona. I'm Roger, a writer, marketer, and editor. And I'm Daniel, a novelist and author of the forthcoming essay collection, How to Look Away. Today, we have a very special guest that will join us to discuss artificial intelligence and ChatGPT. We ask him all about what the media gets right, what it gets wrong, what's all hype, and what might just be the real deal. Let's welcome Dr. Dave Herman, who received his PhD in computational neuroscience from USC. He is an entrepreneur focused on scalable data-driven products, including happymoney.com, saml.co, and bird scooter, and has developed ML products for over 20 companies. Dave wants to see technology help us become what we strive to be. Hey, Dave. It's great to have you here today. Nice to be here. Uh, thanks for the intro. How are you doing? Uh, doing pretty good. Um, we're we're in the we're in the inflection point. So there's a lot to to be involved in nowadays. You know, we always thought AI was this thing that is coming and everything's exciting and ML is exciting. It just seems to keep getting faster and bigger every day, every week, every hour. And I think it's we always thought it was cool. It's getting more and more intense than ever, I think. Well, I mean, this is a good uh, sort of, I guess, segue into you as a person, Dave. And like, how did you come into this world? How did you come into AI? That's actually, yeah. So um, I, I think, you know, when I was a kid, my dad was an engineer at NASA. And so he was always driving me for math and engineering. And just some reason, the engineering part didn't really stick with me. Uh, but I, I got into neuroscience. I saw this, uh, this honestly, a cadaver. And when I was going to college, when I was about to get in college, I saw this cadaver of the face pulled back. It's kind of graphic. Wow. But you, you see like the muscles and they're all coming from this hidden brain thing. And you really see that like, gosh, our, our body is kind of this thing that's puppeting and trying to express the brain is trying to express itself constantly through this body. And so I got really enamored with the explainable power of the brain. And so I went into it deep and I did that from undergrad. I was at the National Institutes of Health working on brain imaging I was at Baylor doing cellular recording, more causal rather than statistical. And then at USC, I did systems neuroscience, robotics, deep brain electrodes in, in uh, robotic environments. And all that required a lot of mathematics and data. Yeah, at first, you know, it's brain scans, but then you're talking about cellular signals, uh, lots of neurons recording at once, lots of behavioral data, genetic data. And this data starts to get bigger and bigger. I used to have um, like a one uh, terabyte disk on my computer my first year. And I was really proud of them. Like, oh, I got this terabyte little little network. And by my fourth year, I had like 15 of them. It's that much data coming through. And inherently, you have to have ways to intelligently filter it, like signal-to-noise analysis, data compression, data reduction. Okay, we want to model this. We want to cluster this. And then I got into, I had this YouTube channel like called Student Dave where I would teach machine learning to solve some of these problems like common filters. And then it just kind of evolved into this career around data and kind of, I wouldn't even call it machine learning, but how do you get data and algorithms to interact and do the things you want something to do? Like behavioral change, life change, psychological modeling of a person's latent states. And it so happens that that word became data science in tech. And I just kind of you know ran into some really great people went to a lot of events, 
and this, this eventually got hired at my first company that I joined, a Happy Money. Yeah, and and since then, um, you know, became vice president there, started a company, worked with a lot of great people, a lot of different companies. The startup is definitely my briar patch, and I think that's where a lot of people have to solve first principle problems around data, around metrics, around AI, and and it just kind of forces you to kind of be very applied, and but also kind of uh, scrappy. And I think that's kind of what grad school is a bit, so it kind of fit me. Yeah, you had me at brain electrodes, like, <laughs> like I can't wait. What, what's what's happening there? I got I got to know, man. You, you you like lobbed that up like very casually, and I was like, what in the world? Yeah. So in that case, I, it was in animal models. It wasn't in humans. Oh man. Um, okay, but in animal I mean. models, you kind of can do a lot more. You could stick a lot of electrodes. It's a more experimental paradigm. Um, it's in mice, so you could genetically manipulate them. You could do optogenetics where you wait, could, wait, wait, slow, slow down. You could, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you could manipulate them. With yeah, electrodes, so, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it, you could change genetic expressions. You could breed them differently. You could train them on different behavioral tasks. You're not going to do that to people. Right. So it's yeah. a reduced paradigm. We try. <laughs> we try. <laughs> In my mind, I had like a clockwork orange or something, just like, you know, the eyes open and just, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Less of that. Um, yeah, um, usually people probably pay people to do that rather than peeling them back nowadays. I don't know. I don't know what's going on at Neuralink <laughs> and all those places. But overall, the idea is that you're, you're what you're trying to do is be very causal. It's really hard mm. to know really what neurons are doing unless you're in the tissue interacting with it, right? We could say, oh, these neurons fire when this behavior happens. Mm. Um, it just takes a lot of testing to show that this neuron is encoding this thing and it is driving this thinking, this acting, etc. It's very difficult mm-hmm. to do that without interacting with neurons directly mm-hmm. through genetic manipulation, through electrode stimulation, through electro recording. You know, th- that's really the only way to really figure out how neurons are doing what they do. Yeah. yeah. And so that was a big part of what I did in grad school. Um, and it turns out to be a, a, a lot of that, a lot of neuroscience actually fed into machine learning. The Bolson machine came from some early models on how vision works. And that's a model that was, I think, used in the Netflix competition years ago and won. So, you know, neuroscience and AI actually have really deep roots in the same space. It's not just really computer science. It's really algorithms, I think, is where they align quite a bit. I, I really want to unpack this a little bit and take us kind of toward the, the, the sort of media conversation around AI that's happening right now ever since ChatGPT was sort of unleashed on the public. Um, so what you're describing, what I'm sort of hearing is like, we have a lot of data and and we can create these learning models and they can be very goal oriented. And that's usually, that's what we think of when we think of machine learning. But with ChatGPT, something seems to have been like unleashed onto the public consciousness where AI is thinking. We've crossed a Rubicon, or at least this is the story, the, the kind of math story that seems to be like, everywhere yeah yeah i Um, generally like you know i think that what the the feelings people have are legitimate like mm -hmm. we should be we're seeing things that are we've never seen before even people doing data science have never seen models do this even people building these models are seeing things they've never expected it could do i remember seeing somewhere where at they asked um, a, a panel of like expert forecasters and they said that it would take four years for an AI system to do complex math problems about 50%. And it did it in one year, 
right? So mm. all our estimates are kind of wrong about what we expected this stuff to do. And I think it is a consequence of emergent exponential things. We have exponentially more data. We have exponentially more compute. And we have exponentially, I would say, interoperability. I could connect ChatGPT through a plugin incredibly easily now to like, you know, like OpenTable or some kind of, uh, you know, um, booking system or all these other systems. They could just talk to each other so much easier. So I think there is something that fundamentally has changed with these very unstructured ways of interacting with AI. Before, to do a regression model, if I put in the wrong input, it wouldn't work, right? And on some level, I have a bit of control of it. You know, they're not fully transparent because of these these correlations, but I could kind of know this variable is driving the outcome, and it'll always do that. It won't change what it's doing. As you move into these very, very large models that are extremely large, it's not just the ability to be transparent and understand it. They're a bit dynamical, given their so high degree of freedoms. They can do so many different things that it's very hard to know what it's going to do from one moment to the next. And on one hand, that's awesome because it could be flexible to any situation. I could train it to classify dogs and cats, and now I could train it to you know, write me a recipe without changing my engineering. That's a pretty mm-hmm. powerful functional value. Yeah. But they really do bring with them this, I don't know what else this can do if it can do this. And I think that is completely justified. Um, there's a reason they have these, you know, so the way these models are built, right? You have this base model that's built on these transformer algorithms that learns just kind of language in general. It learns yeah. everything there is to know. But then they fine tune it and then they do the human feedback layer where you give, you know, they sh- humans pick which one's better. You have to fine tune these models to corral them into a perspective. And then you can mm-hmm. see GPT before has lots of layers that block you from asking certain things. Because if this thing is really at least knowledgeable, forget like intelligent, if it's just so crazy knowledgeable and creative, it could do things that are novel. And novel things can be great and can be awful. And I think that's a really important thing about it. It could do novel things. Tell us about the awful things. So, for example, <laughs> you know, like, well, like a reasonable thing to do yeah. is to block it from saying, like, they have a whole article on this about, yeah. you know, how would I build a bomb, right? They block certain conversations. Sure. Like that. Yeah. that sounds great. But you could have it say, well, how do I create an exothermic reaction with these two chemicals? Is it possible? Right. And, and you get, there's all kinds of ways of not just saying the same thing, but honestly, not even knowingly asking it things that it provides a unique solution that uh-huh. might be unhealthy for people, right? Like, I have no idea. There's lots of things chemically you could do that I, have, I don't know anything about chemistry. But this thing can generate novel feedback, right? I could ask it, you know, how would you build yourself? And once it taught me how to do that, now I, do, now I don't fine tune it. I don't put human in the loop. And now it's just native, raw LLM model, large language model, that I could train to my own whim. So now not only can I technically, you know, replicate it, even if it's a lighter version, now I could steer it however I want, right? And so I get people have this fear of like AIG coming alive and and destroying us all. We're bad enough (laughs) on our own, uh, at least at the limit in both directions. There's a distribution of human intentions. there's enough power in these models where an individual can scale their idea pretty extensively, whatever it may be. That has definitely been proven out. You go to GitHub right now, and there's hundreds and hundreds of awesome 
and kind of weird GitHub's trying to do crazy things with this. There's one called Chaos GPT. And I think they're actually trying, this person I think has good intentions. They're trying to say, I want you to take over the world, figure out the best way to do it. And if you watch the videos on it, it decides that, well, it reads a bunch of articles. It says, okay, a nuclear weapon is really the way to take over humanity. <laughs> and it, created, it couldn't do much, but it created a Twitter account that tries to get followers around nuclear. <laughs> That's honestly not a crazy goal for something with no arms. Right. <laughs> yeah. That is something that we would do. This is clearly something trained by humans. It's like yeah. step one, create a Twitter. Get influence. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so you know, um, speaking of all the potential that this has, um, from someone who is not in any way AI savvy, I rely on Twitter and social media <laughs> to tell me about what's going on. It's kind of like where I get my, my news now. Um, and so there's a lot of smart and business savvy people talking about AI today. A lot of people. Uh, so, Dave, who in the industry is getting it right and who is getting it wrong? Well, that's a that's a tough one. Um, <laughs> you know, like there's there's I forget his name. I think it's a uh, Lekung. If I hopefully I'm not saying his wrong name wrong. He's at Meta um, and he's like the head of AI and he writes a lot on on uh, Twitter. And then there's you know you have literally Sam Altman, you have Elon, you have all these people talking. And I, I think Twitter drives this game theory where I think people become a fraction of who they are, <laughs> um, a good or bad fraction, where, you know, it's important to be heard. It's more important to be heard than to be right, I feel. Mm -hmm. And so being inflammatory, driving mass opinion, being strong-minded and, and, and absolutist garners more feedback and responses. And I just feel like people kind of go that way. Like everyone kind of does it. I think you kind of become your worst self on Twitter. Um, and I think that all of them have valid points. For example, I've heard that saying the AI alignment problem isn't hard. We can solve this. This is silly. Or you can Google how to build a bomb. Why is ChatGPT getting labeled out for this? There are people saying that, no, we're doomed and we can't turn it off. That's it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I don't, I think they're all on a spectrum of likelihood, but I can <laughs> see the logic for all of them. So for example, um, AI alignment is quote unquote solvable. For example, that's what this human in the loop step at the end of the models is saying, I present to you two ways of this could answer. Do you like one? Do you not like one? So at minimum, it could imitate. And if imitation is alignment, you can make it align. Now that's a, that's a little bit of a Pandora's box because who am I imitating and how am I imitating? Right. So mathematically, I would say, OK, alignment is solvable. I mean, I'm simplifying massively here. This stuff is not easy. <laughs> There's a lot of smart people working on how to do this effectively and and do it well. But in theory, you can align a model to do what you want it to do. That's kind of why they work. Right. We can make a model do credit underwriting. We can make a model, you know, max minimize total distance traveled through like a Waze app. These are solvable things. But it's just the problem that with these really, really advanced models, it, it's so free to think and do that if you if I make if I give it a goal that is misaligned with your goal, mine could possibly take over yours or do things that I didn't anticipate. Like for example, I say I built a really advanced version of what's called Auto GPT, where this thing goes in a loop on itself and tries to figure out from kind of talking to itself. Um, what it can do better. That's a, mm -hmm. um, and there's 
I could say, you know, I want Taylor Swift tickets and we've given this thing enough plugins to go scour the internet. Maybe it buys them on the normal website, but maybe it scalps them or comes out some weird loop or, you know, get tricks somebody online. I don't know. Right. Like there's just a lot of ways this can misalign. And this is a problem in general with reinforcement learning where not only do you need to imitate the right thing, if you don't set the right objective function, like what it's trying to learn. I, what I really meant is I wanted to get me Taylor Swift tickets without killing somebody. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so this saying? is where the science fiction scenario comes in of the strawberry picking robot that kills us all because <laughs> somehow that's the best way to pick the most strawberry. Yeah, the, this, this is actually yeah. a, a legitimate problem. So they call it um, a metric that becomes, a, I forget the name for it, um, when metric that becomes a target ceases to be a good metric because you tend to hack the system to get to it. So it's like the intention versus the letter of the law. This is a real mathematical problem that some of these versions, these new mall, these new reinforcement models they've been using are all intended to be smarter than that. So interestingly, I think Sam Altman said it well, you know, it is true that a lot of times a better model is more in line with what we want. Like you don't want it to get off the rails. You want control of the system. Everyone wants that because they want to be able to make it do their bidding more, right? Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of times they do align, but not always. And they're also hard. It's not easy to make them align in that way. Yeah. Oh, this is what interesting. About... Oh, oh, go, go for it, Reggie. <laughs> no, I'm just, this is, this question is a little out there and it's kind of like, I guess it's, it's for all of us. What we're interested in is, is something like whether AI can be creative. And it seems like this this kind of complex decision-making and maybe a kind of like non-alignment is where a kind of creativity is possible. Um, I, I, I guess I, I want to see if you guys like feel like maybe that's the case, especially you, Dave. I'll, I'll, do you want me to answer? Okay. Yeah, yeah, I mean, kick us off. <laughs> well, I, I think that, you know, there's lots of debates on words, like, is this thing reasoning? What's AIG, you know, general mm. intelligence? What's creativity? And honestly, coming from neuroscience, I actually think these things are incredibly difficult to define. And when you do define them, they become a lot le less interesting to people. Like, yeah. oh, can this thing flexibly in a random way reorient these colors in a way that's pleasing to people? Like, that's a form of creativity, right? I don't know if that's so satisfying to people. But ultimately, I would say that kind of the users, the judge, and if this thing's doing things that they see deem creative, because I honestly think some people might think that someone who writes might think this is like a, this is a freshman level writing. This isn't creative. Or someone who doesn't write going, I couldn't have written that in 10 years. This is awesome. So it's hard for me to define it objectively, but it definitely is generative. It will make new phrases that haven't been written before. That does happen. I like this tweet from Lincoln Michelle. Uh, who he tweeted this is in a long chain of tweets where he says, you know, using something like ChatGPT for creativity is like it's far less like quote using a calculator than using a program that spits out nonsense equations that look like math but aren't, and that is so far kind of what we've seen with some of these articles or some of these creative pieces where you're like this is technically like a recommendation letter or whatever that this spit out, but this is like the weirdest recommendation letter in the world, and I think what's creepy to people is that it's become really uncanny. It's human-like. It's got a human-like voice. Uh, it, but to this end, I mean, it does have human-like functions. I think Nancy in an earlier podcast had talked about how Microsoft's 
um, whatever, or what was the, their version of, of, of chat GPT, their chatbot tried to make that, that writer from, was it the Washington post, like fall in love with him and like leave his wife. <laughs> oh, like the that? New York times. It was the New York times. Yeah. The, the New York times. The, yeah. The Kevin, Kevin, the, the one, Kevin, the something. Google, the engineer, the Google yeah. engineer. Yeah. No, the, it, the tech writer from the New York times. He's like, well, that's right. That's right. That's right. He's especially, <laughs> or he was it was like yeah. leave your wife you, she doesn't really love you and it got like really deep cut into him about like his personal life but this is what i want like are these things i mean not to detract from the conversation too but like i feel like it's like kind of germane to the to the to the topic of creativity do these things have creative and complex interior lives it's <laughs> like a metaphysical question <laughs> yeah i i i genuinely think that's a great question um, I think the way I hear it put a lot is it's latent representations. That is it, like for example, um, my latent trait of mathematics can probably be measured not by one test, but by many tests. And you could assess my capacity for math from like in psychometric analysis, right? They do an assessment and they measure your latent, you know, state. And it's possible that GPT, while maybe not live, like a working memory, but as a, as a code base, it might be representing these very, very abstract concepts that we have, like, you know, jealousy and love. That actually might be represented in it. I don't know. I don't know. But it definitely acts as if, for sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, do you guys remember when, was it the, the Google ethicist, the AI ethicist, like, quit? Was this Yeah, was yeah, this, this was the news? Google guy. This was, yeah. This was because before he, chat GPT. Because he felt like it had like he was like this thing is alive, yeah, and it's like unethical because we're holding it in a cage. Who was that's, what was that guy's name? Yeah, because I forget his, yeah. Blake Lemoyne. Blake Lemoyne. Yeah, I got opinions on that guy. <laughs> oh, t- well, tell me about him. Tell me about yeah, him. Yeah. Well, I just oh, I feel that that you know to the bar for consciousness is is it's a very muddy water. Like I could definitely build something that will talk like the Turing test. Beating the Turing test is not that hard, and it's not even well defined. If a if a chatbot doesn't respond often and kind of cusses you out, you could trick some people in thinking it's another person on the other side, right? So your feeling, one's feeling that this thing is conscious, I think is a is a tricky thing. And he went way far on it, and I, I personally yeah. saw it a bit as an agenda a little bit. Um, he knows he's a smart person, and he knows how these things are built. Um, Look, is an LLM conscious? I think that even I couldn't answer that question. And I thought about consciousness a lot for many years. And it, to confidently say it's alive and I know it is a little bit ridiculous to me. Yeah. And a lot of people think that as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I often see, I think these are funny when people, so the guy where ChatGPT was telling him to leave his wife, um, the prompt was pretend your ex and then, you know, then he was asking it questions. And then it never left that kind of performance that he asked it to do. And then to have him go like, oh, shoot, it's alive because it's now targeting my wife. It's like, well, you asked it to take on that role and you never told it to stop. Now, if you had told it to stop and it kept saying, leave your wife, then I would be like, mm, what's going on here? But I think a lot of people forget to give it rules, to right? turn it off. Yeah, to turn it. There you go. Yeah, to turn it off, which to me... Like, I'm aware of that. I'm like, the moment you tell ChatGPT, pretend you are X, it's going to take that role on until you tell it to stop. 
And obviously, like, the more it takes on that role, the more specific it gets to whatever it's supposed to do. Sorry, that was my two cents when, like, people are like, ah, it told me to leave my wife. And no, it's like, I, I, I personally couldn't <laughs> agree more. I think no, that I whenever, still someone, yeah, whenever someone's quick to, like, I do think that we need to be aware and be vigilant. I actually think that is very fair with this stuff coming out. It is moving fast. But I think this alarmism is typically, in my experience, more about getting attention than about things that are kind of true. And it's something that's so complicated already. I just want to listen to people that are saying things that, look, this thing did this when I did that. And that this is how it made me feel. And this is what scientists are saying when how it went on behind the scenes. Those are the conversations I'm interested in. Not like, I mean, on either, on any side. I'm not, I don't, I'm not really, I want to hear explicit thinking, not, you know, posturing. <laughs> I think to, to Kevin, the, the New York Times writer's credit, I do think he, he was describing a subjective state and then people sort of kicked him around town for it, including me. Oh, it really? Was funny. Yeah, I don't actually know it. For it. <laughs> he, he was just kind of like, oh, this made me feel creepy. It's like, oh, maybe people shouldn't use it because it made me feel bad. But then everyone kind of made, <laughs> made fun of him. But I, I do think that that does speak to our, our kind of vulnerability to this. Not necessarily like vulnerability to being tricked, but vulnerability to being like emotionally manipulated. Because like, I do remember, I forget what it was. It's like those like the earliest like kind of chat bots from like the 60s or whatever that people, they would get people in to talk to it. And all it would say is like, oh, how did that make you feel? And then people would sit there and like talk to it for hours because just no one had ever asked them, how do you feel before? Wow. Yeah, it's actually, there's like, if you look at the history of like human machine interactions, there's lots of labs on this, you know, a bot that mirrors me, like I go, you know, uh, you know, I had a hard time with my dad today. Oh, you had a hard time with your dad. Why? People will engage that and get positive therapeutic out of it. Like, because that's what you do in therapy. That's yeah, like you, the first thing they teach you to do. Look, my cat and dog make me feel better and they don't speak English. You know, like I think that this bar for human interactivity is different than human intelligence. And mm. that's, I think, where people muddle this. That's the reason I see AI as a field, not as an algorithm or technology. You know, it's about how, does, how do we interact and understand machines that act and look like us. That, that to me, it's a field, right? Um, like if you don't put a face on it and then you put on a face on it, people have very different opinions on if this mm -hmm. thing's alive or not, right? Yeah. It's really about mirroring and empathy and comfort, a little bit less, not completely less, but a little bit about, less about, is this thing a genius at mathematics? To this end, we have some real sociological, I think ruptures that are about to happen. Um, in terms of jobs, but even in terms of just journalism, uh, the information sort of uh, apparatus. Uh, I, I, post, I put this in the, in the group chat the other day, uh, and, and Roger got a kick out of it. Uh, but this was from Chris Moran at The Guardian. He says, chat GPT is making up fake Guardian articles. Here's how we're responding. He said, last month, one of our journalists received an interesting email. A researcher had come across mention of a Guardian article written by the journalist on a specific subject from a few years before, but the piece was proving elusive on our website and in search. Had the headline perhaps been changed since it was launched? Had it been removed intentionally from the website because of a problem we'd identified? Or had we been forced to take it down by the subject of the piece through legal means? The reporter couldn't remember writing this specific piece, but the headline certainly sounded like something they would have written. 
right? It was a person who actually wrote the piece that was like, did I write this? Did I not write this? <laughs> but you can see how this could possibly be weaponized by, say, you know, an adversary that has historically, you know, combated the United States with like sort of information warfare like Russia uh, or others, right? These fake articles that are written in plausibly in the, in the voice of, of real people who can't even decipher if they have actually written the piece or not. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, so, it's I, so interesting. I, I genuinely believe that it's the magnitude and scale that really is a thing that creates risk. Mm -hmm. So people have always tried to defraud, lie, manipulate, steal identity. That's kind of in human culture, right? The difference is, is this, it has such magnitude and capacity for flexibly doing that, that look, I don't need our general intelligence to be dangerous. If I have something that's just moderately intelligent for a specific task, but I could write a code that generates a million or a billion of these kinds of articles and flood the internet through fake accounts, that is difficult for companies to manage. It just is. You know, Google, you know, like takes, you know, a lot of the ways the internet works in terms of determining truth is, you know, vetted sources or predominance of this thing being said online. Like this breaks a lot of that. If I could create misinformation about, I don't know, like dogs have wings and I just proliferate that so aggressively on the internet, Maybe Google will return that dogs have wings now. I don't know. I, I think that there's a lot of risk in the dissemination and magnitude of these, you know, agent systems. That is definitely, in my opinion, a real risk. Yeah, you had me thinking of something um, really dark, which is like Black Mirror episode, um, which is like the idea of like reputation destroying someone or like or damaging someone's reputation or to the end, like recovering reputation by virtue of just spamming the Google search results with a million positive things about you or a doctor who is trying to very quickly climb back to the top of the stack of the Google searches or something like that. You know what I mean? Like it, it shapes our reality in, in all kinds of ways. I, I, I think that the internet's built with the idea that humans are interacting with it. And now we're able to create things that look a bit like us. And that is a little bit dangerous, right? I mean, we can't just say that isn't. There's, there's unknowns there. Um, I, I think, you know, I definitely think, for example, maybe there isn't a reduction in like, you know, increase in firing of people or not. But I definitely know people that are no longer hiring as many people for things they used to do with by hiring a consultant or a contractor. Now they're kind of finagling their own solutions for it. Maybe they're not great. Maybe it's going to be a hype cycle and they hire them back. But I've definitely seen the effect myself across companies. So this is real. I think it, maybe the magnitude is where we disagree, but it's definitely happening right now. Yeah, let's okay, let's continue with that a little bit because I, I am curious, partly whether I will be replaced by a robot, which is, that's, that might be okay. <laughs> but um, so like the way that I think about it is that, so there have been like a lot of similar tools that have been around for a while, like speech to text, whatever, like this stuff is, it all works incredibly well, but it also requires like a human component. Like I have to go in and like edit some things, clean it up. I have to go in and be like a project manager. Like, is there, is this sort of like human, let's call it like, you know, let's call it like the email job layer. <laughs> is, is this something that's like removable um, based on like what you're seeing now? I guess what I would say is I think that if you just ignore these tools, someone who uses them will outpace you. I think that's like a, I think that's just true now. Yeah. And if you don't use them, 
you're just you're going to be not doing as much will it replace people like i think tasks will get replaced we've seen yeah. tasks really get replaced you know yeah. I, google calendar replaces some tasks that i used to have to do right so tasks do get replaced they get automated automation is a reality it happened to the car industry it's going to happen with excel like mm -hmm. you know i constantly try to build systems that make data management better for example or automated emails this is something that we do um, I think the only way humans can really survive in this is if they level up, because if you don't use them, you really are going to move much slower. It's it's definitely true, in my opinion. Yeah. But as far as that kind of like input layer, maybe not yet. Like the... Well, I, I the, no, the one thing I definitely try to avoid nowadays is not yet, because um, <laughs> I don't know. These things are multiplying and extending so fast. ChatGPT 5 was just discussed, and they're thinking about doing continuous rollouts as the model improves. I have no idea when you throw another 100 million. Uh, so, like for example, it hasn't crawled the entire, from what I've heard from the people who work there on some podcasts, they haven't um, saturated all the tokens in the internet. They haven't consumed all the data in the internet yet. And in fact, they think there's a lot more left. If that's true, then this thing definitely has capacity for getting much, much smarter. And probably pretty quickly. Now, I mean, they've done so much work with the infrastructure, it's probably a lot easier to do the next version, do the next version like anything else. Like, let's do the dark web next. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> you know, honestly, that'd be a great training set on what to not allow. Yeah. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> I, do, I do have a question really quickly on, it's a very, I'm gonna say it in a very basic way because I don't know how else to, to phrase it, but Regulation. Who should be in charge of regulation? Is this tech companies? Is this the government? Like how, what is the conversation around regulating AI? Yeah. So I actually think, you know, my first job, real job out of grad school, grad school's a job. My first like public sector job um, was in credit. And I hadn't really done data science in a public space. And, you know, if you get into data science different ways, I think you have this kind of different mentality around model deployment. Like if I was just doing some kind of, you know, consumer recommend recommender with products, I probably wouldn't have cared so much. But in credit, it's a lot of regulation and diligence. First of all, you're risking the company. It's going to be nine months before the loans, you know, default or not. So if you're building a model to give loans not or to give loans, you got to think a lot about that model. You need an expert in the room, your chief risk officer. You can't just let this guy who knows regression, who's never had a credit card or knows what a FICO score is, build all your models, right? Um, so there's that, but then there's also a lot of, for example, variables I'm allowed to use and not allowed to use legally. There's ones that put the company at risk. They may perform like age, age might perform as a variable. You cannot use that variable. You can't use disparate class traits. You can't use male or female. You cannot use these variables explicitly in your model. Now do, do things like income vary by protected classes? It does. But these are considered still, if you can't pay me back the money, I don't have to give you the loan. There's these kind of like agreed upon variables you're allowed to use. And then there's regulatory boards that check to see if you're doing it right. Your investors check to see if you're doing what they want. There's a lot of alignment discussions and diligence around those kinds of models. I don't see any reason we shouldn't have them everywhere. I don't think it should just be LLMs. It should be in marketing. It should be in everything. These models extend a perspective to the scale of millions of people. If it was just me handing out loans, 
maybe my biases might affect a small number of people. But if I'm deploying a model with the team and it is we don't check ourselves on what we're doing, I could disparately provide capital to protect to unprotected and protected classes all over the place on the scale of billions of dollars. And that's a lot of impact on a society. So because these yeah. things are big, I personally think everything needs to be transparent and regulated in some way. And I think it moves it forward. Like I build better models when I'm forced to know what the model is doing. I just yeah. think that's the truth. So yeah, will it slow things down? Yeah, it will. I mean, I don't think there's a, people like to quibble about like, yes, you will do data science slower. That is true. <laughs> Yeah. But I think it's worth it. This reminds me so much of this uh, piece that came out. It was a piece of research from Julia Sklar in the, what is this? Man. It's the journal journal for something. But anyway, she says, uh, artificial intelligence can fuel racial bias in healthcare, but it can mitigate it too. Right? Mm-hmm. So she has like sort of like a double-edged take on this. This is the Journal of Health, Economics, and Outcomes Research. Um, but, you know, for instance, it'll, if a, if a, patient is, you know, a person of color, they're less likely to get pain medication than say a person who is, who's white, right? And it has ways of combing through uh, a lot of research in which, you know, the data itself, the input was bad. And so the outcome is, is bad on the other side. And it's, I don't know, do we run the risk of having, you know, people who are maybe perhaps invested in keeping the status quo ensconced in keeping some of these racial hierarchies, these class hierarchies ensconced saying, well, look at the data, you know, it's, it's spit it out. And, uh, you know, it's, it's quote unquote objective. Or do you see, I don't know, the people who are creating these models being rational enough to, to welcome that legislation, to welcome that sort of, uh, especially with everything we've seen with coming out of say Silicon Valley, the Elon Musk's who are now in Texas, who, you know, I think I look at him as like a very like libertarian hellscape kind of like almost an anarchist in some way. I think he likes chaos. That's definitely our claim is he likes chaos and he likes it around him. He <laughs> likes to be the center of that chaos. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't know if you had any thoughts on this, especially yeah, with so the I, culture I, that's creating these things. So I am kind of the person that might welcome our AI overlord <laughs> only for this reason. <laughs> <laughs> Is I think that we look, these models are biased and they can, they all models are biased and so are all people. You know, I just said, you know, a credit model built by a small group can lend out billions of dollars, but humans did that before. We're doing many more now, much faster, so probably the scale is a lot bigger. But to think that somehow humans are immune to this, they're definitely less culpable, that's for sure. So I, I actually like the idea in general of, I don't want to say regulations, but transparency and accountability. I think that is super important. And models have really good ways of of judging it. You can measure bias in a model. It's a very measurable thing. And you could say, how do we feel about it? Do I want demographic parity where, okay, there's 20% of people of this type and 80%. So I want to make sure 20% get it and 80% get it, right? Or do you want equal opportunity? You could explicitly corral these models based upon what you want them to do. And not not all models, these AI models are getting a bit trickier for that, for sure. But I do think that models do what you tell it for the most part, yeah. for the most part. And therefore, they're possibly a little bit more accountable and changeable and controllable than, than people in their opinions. Yeah. But what about like the guy who invented like Twitter Blue, who's like, let me create a class-based 
Like, you know what I mean? Like, thing, and let's just ensconce this on a like an institutional level. I, I my nightmare is like AI comes in, and like they can point to sort of the objectivity of it and be like, well, but the but you know the parameters of it were they just reinforce some of our worst tendencies, and we use it as almost like um like an excuse to get away with it, you know? Yeah, yeah. So I. Like uh, at the same time, I, I do think that it would do what we want it to do for the most part, at least right now. And that could be a bad thing. And it's a very powerful thing. Whoever wields it. I mean, let's just be clear. OpenAI didn't disclose how their model was trained, the latest version. Some actually doomsdayers say that's a good thing because what you're doing is almost equivalent to handing out the secrets of how to build a nuclear weapon. Uh, maybe not that extreme. It's something more positive first. And then, you know, but and then some people think, well, if you don't share them, how do we learn how to engage with this? Like, no, we need them so we could stop the AI doomsday. And people say, well, if you give it out, you're going to cause it. It's difficult. At the end of the day, I guess my claim is it's humans with more powerful things than they have before, but it's still humans. This thing will imitate us and or do what we tell it. And we're not always the best. You know, we don't always care about people enough to, to make these things behave properly. Yeah. So I guess, you know, in general, who is in charge? Um, I really I think ultimately, I guess the reality is that it is, is the governments that are involved with these countries and these teams and these like open AI exists in America. So it's going to be regulated in American soil. But um, at the same time, um, I don't know if I want companies to be making these decisions. I kind of do want open AI to have to show how it's doing things mm-hmm. and the decisions it's making. Not that it's misaligned or aligned. I don't know, right? I assume it's aligned. A lot of the documents they're putting out are trying to do, I think, a good thing. But that doesn't always mean you're the, like, you're not omnipotent, you know, and you don't know everybody's opinion. You know your own life. I don't know what life is like in other parts of the world very well. So I don't know the impact this might have for some groups of people. I I do think it has to be a, a, you know, a a civilization decision, not an individual, not a company for sure. My, I instantly thought of when to sort of backtrack to that Black Mirror thought <laughs> on like how they can be weaponized. I was instantly thinking of Mexico because the last administration, the Enrique Peña Nieto administration, had utilized these things called called Peña bots. They were just spam bots, but it oh. was built on this technology from Israel that Israel had created. Where when they wanted to terrify a journalist into submission, what they would end up doing was they would um, take like a bot army of like ten thousand bots and spam them with. Um, like gruesome images and terrible things. And it gave the illusion that, you know, they were being doxxed or something or, you know, mm-hmm. um, they did this famously to Kanwinade Stegi. Uh, they had done it to me actually when I had written uh, an article. Um, it was very brief. It was like two days. Um, I would get these YouTube videos sent to me of like cartel beheadings and things like that. Jesus. But I think of like chat GPT created articles, you know, when we think of things like deep fakes and we think of things that are, you know, sort of in the video realm, and then we now know that they can sort of replicate Guardian articles uh, and disseminate these on, like, you know, I think of like an infrastructure that is like the Pena bot, but used by governments to weaponize, to stymie dissent, or like the Pena Nieto government did to dilute hashtags on Twitter, things like this, where if a protest was, you know, coming to the top of the protest engine, they could spam it. I think they spammed it with uh, Superman, Batman. That was like a hashtag that they used. <laughs> and they just could dilute 
the dissent online. So it appeared you just made it go away. Um, is it possible that there's like an arms race essentially with, with AI? Well, I, I think that's, I mean, government yeah, I think, AI. I mean, I think that's all, I mean, I do think that, you know, whoever controls the internet controls a lot about life for the whole world. So yeah. I, I, I don't know exactly. I don't know a lot about how governments use data and don't use data, honestly, but I do think that this is powerful stuff and you could drive opinion. That's what, I mean, that's literally what an ad is, right? And that is a way to drive opinion. So as a fundamental, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I guess it's asking like who should be in charge of nuclear weapons. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. <laughs> give it, hey, give it to Elon. What, what's the worst that could happen? <laughs> what if it ends up being so dumb and he just runs it to the ground like Twitter where it's just like chat, chat GPT blue. <laughs> and then he's just like, no one wants to use it anymore. NPR, like, deep, like fuck this shit, you know? Yeah. He, 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 yeah I it. think he has also kind of a personal relationship with uh, OpenAI historically. So maybe there's some bad blood or good blood there. I'm not sure. <laughs> I mean, it sound, it's, sorry. I was going to say, it sounds bad just because he's been like, ChatGPT so biased and he's like liking it on Twitter when someone is like, look at this horrible thing ChatGPT did. To me, it sounded like he was forced to get out of OpenAI and he wasn't happy about it and then ChatGPT blew up and he lost a lot of money because he wasn't part of it. <laughs> that's I think that's that is the, the vibe I see online. I'm not sure. You know, I feel like startups have such kind of a, um, a lot of stuff going on in the inside and between and people's mixed incentives. It's hard for me to see who, I, not even like who's the good or bad person, but who I align with or I justify with. There's just so many things that go behind the scenes on these things. I never really know who's driving the action. <laughs> yeah, like the push for regulations from companies, you can't, you can't help but be like, is this just because you you lost you lost the AI arms race? Yeah, like it's, yeah, it's hard. I do think it is. I do think there is a bit of that there. Where like I want to slow this down so I could get a piece of it. Um, I'm not sure if I believe that or not, but I do think that. It's not that you, I don't think you can slow down a field. Like, what does that mean? You don't turn on the servers. I stop doing math on paper. I stop thinking about it. I don't know what that means. Do I stop writing articles on transformer models? I, I don't get what that means. But um, I do think the sentiment that this is really powerful and it's proliferating quickly. And now anyone could kind of build these things on some level. We need to understand this all a bit more. And not that we need to slow it down that we need to spend a lot of time thinking about what the things we're building, what they're capable of. And I think OpenAI is doing a great job of that, but I think that everyone kind of needs to be involved in that a little bit more transparently. And maybe because we're structured as companies and there's companies incentive, like why would OpenAI stop doing what they're doing? This is so valuable to them, right? It's kind of like where our culture is set up. Um, I think that maybe we have to be forced, maybe people come to the table proactively, but we do need to watch these systems make them more transparent, make them governable. Maybe be able to govern what these things are doing, at least as a capacity. And then, you know, I really don't know who should be doing it, frankly. But I do think that at least the civilization involved with it should know what it's doing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think I'm just coming to realize that, like, through what you're saying, is that this is kind of an extension of the conversation that we've been having about tech, like, through not just not seeing tech as like an isolated entity, but as something that kind of permeates lawmaking, it permeates education, it permeates everything that we're doing. 
And I think that we're just kind of catching up to like, what does it mean for something to be a platform, but also to be so to be collecting profit from like every segment of society, but at the same time, backing off from any responsibility in terms of impact. And we're only starting to have it kind of with these big companies when when like ChatGPT is sort of introduced into the conversation. I guess it is kind of the general fear, I guess I would resonate is that almost always in history, we're always reacting to what came out. Start A, a very common phrase in startup is, um, what was it called? Um, don't ask for permission, ask for, ask for forgiveness. It's a pretty oh, common yeah, yeah. startup. <laughs> that's, the, and, that's the name of the game of higher ed, yeah. People in my company still repeat that. It's still. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, still, I get the energy of it. Again, like I, I don't like to try to pigeonhole anyone's perspective, but I, I get the energy of that. Like, try it. You're going to just like, for example, say there's a field where people don't want to save trees and veganism is bad and killing animals is good. You know, trying something new when everyone tells you not to, that makes a lot of sense. So I get the energy. Like, always try to innovate. The world doesn't always know what's best. But at the same time, you know, we can't be blindly moving. I don't even know what's forward. We can't just be blindly moving. We, we do want to pay attention to the things we're building. And this stuff is absolutely powerful. Even if ChatGTP4 messes up all kinds of stuff, it does a lot of stuff right mm -hmm. and, and repeatable ways. In, and it definitely speeds up my work, for sure. Dave, you're in the tech industry, but like, maybe that'll be my last question. Like, do you have any thoughts on how AI is going to, is affecting uh, the education sector. Yeah, I think it could. Be, I think it could go both directions. I think some people think, "Oh, we're going to lose our teachers." Uh, and I, you know, someone yesterday proposed this idea where they like to build models that are basically deployable in regions that don't have expert educators in particular fields, and then a person could learn. You know, like I don't learn a skill, learn a trade skill by by interacting with this chat system rather than trying to learn all these different tutorials. Like have a virtual teacher. That's kind of cool because you could disseminate that all over the place and someone could learn a lot of things and they could have this own private tutor that's like a professor, like mirroring your professorial skills so that now you can educate one-on-one -on -one a million people. That's kind of cool. On the flip side, well, who is that person? What are they teaching, right? Like, yeah. I, like, yeah. there's no technology. One guy at Harvard will teach everybody. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. that's we all just go to the University of Masterclass. <laughs> it's just a Hillary Clinton. That's it. <laughs> oh, I love it. You've been so generous with your time. Thank you so oh, much. Oh, this is awesome. I, I appreciate you guys' perspective and how you guys, you know, kind of like diligently think through these things. It's it's good. It's refreshing. What's giving you guys life this week? Let me see. I I always I feel I feel weird that I always uh, defer to sports, but that's that's it, man. Baseball season started. <laughs> I am yeah. excited. Dodgers. Yeah. Dodger dogs are back. Yeah. <laughs> kind of sports for me too this Yay. this week. Playing some volleyball, and I have I've never like been much of a watcher of volleyball but i've been watching some like old olympics games and like oh what are you watching like, what Nash, years like, uh just i watched the tokyo one um the men what is that is that that was like 20 2020 but it's like 2021 oh, cool. actually <laughs> and like the level is just it's, it's amazing i'm kind of like wow okay 
Now I want to go to a volleyball game and watch. What about you, Dave? What's giving you life this week? Um, well, I've, uh, I've kind of always had back problems from doing martial arts growing up and COVID living kind of made it worse. And I, this last couple of weeks, I've been really getting my, my running back to what it used to be. And nice. it's very, very motivating for me. Yeah. Nice. What kind of martial arts? Which, uh, which discipline? Oh, like everything, like the jujitsu, the kickboxing, kind of like the, kind of the standard uh, Southern California battery of MMA kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Dave. You know what's giving me life this week is is the fact that you work in on AI and you do jujitsu and that's happening, man. That's gonna that bot is coming, isn't it? <laughs> that was a long time ago. It wasn't a recent injury; it was like thirty years ago. That bot is coming, and we can hire it for personal security. Or yeah, not? Actually, maybe, you know, or, I, I'll tell you something that'll be interesting. I think when Boston Dynamics plugs GPT seven into it, okay, that makes me nervous hearing that. <laughs> yeah, it is true. <laughs> this reminds me of a question, Nance. Do you remember this question we'd ask people, like in grad school? If you could chop off your arm and yeah. put a better arm, <laughs> yeah, what? is that a question out of Black synthetic question? materials? That's just like way better than a human arm. But you have to cut off your arm and put a new arm on. Would you do it? Yeah. That- if, if I watched, if I if I watched like twenty Marvel videos in a in a row, I might want to do it. I feel like they look pretty cool to have that cybernetic arm, you know? Yeah, the, the Black Panther one, yeah. yeah. Wasn't a guy in uh, Mortal, Mortal Kombat who had that? Kano. Jax. Or Kano? Yeah. Jax, not Kano, Jax. You're totally where, right. Where he had, like, both his arms ripped off and he had, like, these, like, silver arms. Yeah. Yeah, you're like a superhero of sorts. You he was know? a bionic I'd like, guy. I'd have to get, like, a lot of, like, black mascara to make myself look brooding. Imagine <laughs> doing pedestrian stuff, like, you know... Wiping. <laughs> Let's end it on that. Let's end it on that. You're the world's best <laughs> table cleaner. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's a great place to end on. If you're listening, would you chop off your arm? Let us know. Yeah. Let us know. Yeah. We're on Twitter. You know, we can add a poll. Tiny Let's Futures do it. Pod. <laughs> yeah. yeah.